What's the game-changing realization that helped you build a high-performing team? That question is at the center of every episode of the HR Impact Show. Every HR professional wants to build a team that has empowered managers, engaged employees, and an organization that's striving to become elite. The challenge is that you're often told to do more with less. We're gonna fix that. Every week, we will feature executive and senior HR leaders from across the country, and they will share with us their actionable insights and best practices that can help empower you to create an engaged elite workforce. Here's the show. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Impact Show. I am your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. And today we're going to learn why obsessing about policy and process will create an organization that's afraid to try. The person that's going to help us answer that question is joining us today. He's the current VP of Human Resources at CPM Holdings. He leads the HR function for an organization that spans 14 countries across 34 locations. He's got extensive experience within various Fortune 500 organizations that's equipped them with a deep understanding of industry best practices. In addition to his day job, he's also the founder and CEO of Human Innovation LLC, a firm that's dedicated to instigating transformative changes in the world of work. He's also the co-founder of Disrupt HR in Cedar Valley. He's the past president of Cedar Valley SHRM and He's also a podcaster, host of the Rebel HR podcast, Kyle Rode. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Dr. Jim. I'm happy to be here with a, a fellow HR nerd. I think you got me beat on some of the nerd side of it because you're actually in the trenches as a practitioner <laughs> and I'm just a, a megaphone that talks about stuff from more of a theoretical lens than anything else. But with that being said, I know that we included a lot in your bio. I want you to share a little bit more about what did I leave out that's going to be relevant to the folks listening to the show and that's going to help them get the appropriate lens of your background and your your insights. It's a, a great question to start. First of all, like I hate those bios because they're like super long and it's it's almost like borderline embarrassing. You know, I'm a Midwestern guy. Humility is one of the cornerstones of our culture. So I don't really like the long bio, but I, I will say like for my background, I like a lot of HR professionals. I did not go to school for HR. This was a job that I jokingly say found me. And at the time I was a little bit of a little bit of a misfit. My, my first career choice was musician and, and that really quickly turned into a musician slash bartender and then just bartender from there ended up going back to school for business and, and fell into HR eventually, but I still kept that kind of that rebel spirit. And, and from my standpoint, as I have been in the HR realm, a lot of my work has really been focused on organizational change and change management, as well as cultural development. And I think one of the things that's most fascinating about my work and one of the things I love about it is it's all about connection and connection to strategy. And then the topic we're going to talk about today is, but then how do you actually take that and drive change and execute and pragmatically make things happen that are actually innovative and sustainable? I appreciate you sharing that. There's a few things that I want to pick at and one of the things, and obviously for those that will eventually catch this, the video version of it, you got a wall of guitars. And normally when I see people that were musically inclined, I normally see this career trajectory where they're in a heavy data and math oriented function. And I'm curious how your 
musical background informed a lot of the work or the tendencies that led you into first IT and then later into into HR? A little bit of a non-traditional path. So I started as an IT project manager and I was like setting up computer hardware for a school district. And I was doing that because I could do it. In general, the musician in me is driven towards patterns and evoking emotion through those patterns. That's really what music is. That's how music is interpreted in my mind. And so like to your point, yeah, that that tends to lend itself to people who are, are drawn to math and and the analytical side of things. And I like to flex that muscle, but I like to flex that muscle in a way that's also very, very like creative. And so it's, so HR for me is like a great, it's, it's like a creative outlet. It's like writing a song. Like, how do I, how do I compose this song so that I get a start and a finish? And then there's all this crazy improv that happens in the middle. And one of the, one of the types of music that I played most heavily was jazz and then metal guitar, but it was all driven around improv and Really what that means is you're given a structure, you're given a goal or a a space of time to fill, and then you fill it however you feel you should, given the circumstances that you have, whether that's a certain feeling you have, maybe you want to try something new, maybe you got a riff that you've been working on. And I, I think HR is a lot of that's the same way because you're dealing with human behavior. Sometimes you're just working with the script that you're given and you're trying to figure out a way to evoke the emotion that's inside of you or an evoke an emotion that is out in the audience. My argument is HR is basically the exact same thing. You're just doing it in a business context. There's another interesting bit of context that I'd like you to share. You spent some of your earlier HR career in the retail space and you're currently now in the manufacturing space. I'm curious how your experience in retail prepared you or informed you in terms of your people strategy and your current role in the manufacturing space? My career path, I I look back and it's, I never would have mapped it out this way. And I think a lot of people look at their careers that way. And so for for those out there that are reflecting on that or questioning career paths, I'm a firm believer everything happens for a reason. And and from my standpoint, the opportunity to work in retail was was something I had done. It was one of my first jobs when I was a kid, was bagging groceries. And so I knew how to do it but I hadn't led before. And so what that gave me an opportunity to do was what I would say three key things that have really shaped my professional career ever since. One is learn how to lead. And I had the opportunity to work with on my team. I had four amazing leaders right out of college that reported to me. So I was leading leaders. And what that really meant is they taught me how to lead. (laughs) The ability to soak in the years and years of leadership experience they had was invaluable. The second thing was understanding how to interact with people, both in a retail setting. So you've got customers and you've got employees and and the opportunity to lead in that environment is very chaotic, can be very stressful, but it's like boot camp. And I'm a firm believer that if you're going to be an HR operator, you've got to know how to lead because you've got to know the struggles that leaders are facing if you intend to help leaders improve. And for me, that was invaluable. And then finally, the last thing I would say is the opportunity to get into HR was because of that organization. I had a mentor that kind of took me under his wing. He was in human resources and he just seemed to have fun. He was just a good guy. And he really helped shape the vision of what I believed HR could be. I learned a ton of best practices. It was a massive retailer. And so I learned a significant amount of best practices, many of them that I still incorporate today in my day to day. And so I think really foundational. And then when I transitioned into manufacturing and then in my role right now, I oversee the corporate function within a a manufacturing group. 
as well as an engineering group and some other thought leaders within my space. That's all of those paradigms still exist. Nothing really changed. It's just the industry is different, but all of the skills that you learn, how to lead, how to focus on people, interact with people, how to actually look at an HR program and execute appropriately and how to manage through stress. I use all those skills today. You've had a career that's gone a non-traditional route into people leadership within HR. And when you think about all of the different experiences that you've had and you tie it to what's that game-changing lesson that you picked up that helped you build a high-performing team, what stands out? Probably the biggest lesson, the biggest focus early in my career, and it continues to be a focus today, and quite frankly, it hasn't led me astray, is a focus on the competency of managing execution. And you could sum it up as get stuff done. And it, and what I have found is that if I invest my time in ensuring that I am getting stuff done in general, things seem to work out. How I have got things done has evolved over the years, but early in my career, it was all about figuring out how to motivate others to do the work that needs to get done. I was always one of those individuals that that was relatively effective at, at getting things done. Always, I, I performed well in school and I could generally get tasks done fairly quickly. Uh, it was a learning curve to figure out how to get others to do that. And from my standpoint, a lot of it comes down to number one, how are you structuring uh, the items that need to get done? What are the deliverables? How are you measuring that? What does success look like? What does good look like? How are you validating that the objective is even the right priority? All of those things, as you think about the strategic planning aspect of my role, you've got to make sure that you know where you're going. And ultimately, you've got to communicate that to your team. But then the trick from my standpoint is it's not just making sure you got a good project plan. It's then motivating and engaging the people that are executing those projects, including yourself, to, to stay focused on what really matters. And so a lot of my job right now, I consider to be a lot of facilitation. So I am not spending my time doing. I am spending my time motivating and helping others do what I need them to do. And that's really easy for me to sit here and say, but it all comes down to making sure that people understand where they're going, that people trust you and believe in where you're leading them and making sure that there's a shared accountability between yourself and the individuals that you're leading to achieve that goal. A lot of people do that a lot of different ways, but if you look back and you think about the leaders that I aspire to, to be like, or the people that I love following, it's those that can help motivate you to do the best work that you can do and give you the tools to be successful. And so that when you think about a high-performing team, I just think about it as simple as get stuff done. How do they get stuff done? Do they win? One of the interesting things, and I wrote this down, learning how to have others get stuff done. And that's one of the trickiest aspects of being in people leadership, regardless of what function that you're in. One of the things that I'm curious about, especially given the amount of time that you've spent in retail and then now in manufacturing, the pace in those environments are pretty unforgiving. So what were the things that you did to create space to get others to buy into the bigger picture and be motivated to get stuff done? The honest answer is it's still tough. And there's so many industries that are like that, where it's just, you've got so many different pressures coming at you. You've got time constraints, you've got deliveries, you've got schedules, whether you're in a healthcare environment, retail manufacturing service industry. It's, it can be a furnace of pressure sometimes. And a lot of my work 
has been around making sure that people understand the priority. And I, I said this last week with one of my leaders, I said, if you've got 37 priorities, you don't have any priorities. What is the organizational vision? What is the most important thing you need to get done? What are the, the top one, two, three, four things that need to get done today in order to achieve your greater organizational objective? And so that prioritization piece for me is, is really critical. And it's really easy to lose sight of that. I actually think from my standpoint as an HR leader, one of the one of the biggest cardinal sins that we commit, and I, I, I'm, I'm guilty of this uh, in, in my past, is we assume that our priorities should be everybody else's priority. But the reality is that some of your programs that you have might not hit the priority list to somebody who's getting screamed at by a customer because they need their delivery today, right? And, and so it's, again, I go back to early in my career, learning how to lead and learning the pressures that leaders are under is really critical in making sure that you're not tone deaf and what those things need to be. But I also think that it, a lot of it comes down to making sure that you've got a level of trust and understanding and empathy with your team so that if they get overwhelmed or if they have a question or if they don't understand the priority, they tell you. And that's the other thing that I see so often is individuals who will get really frustrated because they've communicated till they're blue in the face or they feel like they've done a good job making sure that people understand what needs to get done or how it needs to get done. But the reality is that people don't have that level of trust to ask and to have that collaborative discussion. I think that's another critical component that uh, certainly I could always improve in, but I try to do that. And I certainly try to coach my leaders to do the same. Wow. It's been a great conversation so far. Make sure you join the HR Impact community where we gather a community of HR leaders just like you. This is a space where top people leaders share actionable insights and practical playbooks. Sign up today as a member for the community. Get updates on the latest HR resources and exclusive event invites. You can join the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR impact. And now back to the show. I really like the point that you made about building trust within an environment, especially when you're in a fast paced environment, you're dealing with uh, a lot of competing deadlines and pressure managers and leaders have to get really effective in doing that in the moment and on the fly versus in a traditional corporate setting where you have the space for detailed one-on-ones and things like that. I think when you're thinking about building that space for trust, a lot of it can be accomplished doing it in the fly. And that's going to be critical even in the busiest of organizations. From a leadership perspective, I think the more leaders in those environments can say stuff out loud about where they're at, where their headspace at, is at tying the vision to the top three priorities and getting agreement around that. Those are just core best practices that I think work in any environment. One of the things that you mentioned, and it was early on in the conversation, is focus on the competency of managing execution. So when we look at managing execution, there's two schools of thought. One is tightly engineered processes that help you execute. And the other is basically whatever the opposite of that is. So when you look at managing the competency of, of execution, what's the danger in over-engineering the process in terms of how it impacts your people and it impacts your pace? This is easy. My, my school of thought is that, that you can't engineer it because human behavior is illogical. And so if you're trying to create Let's just, we'll use a policy as an example, because that's a, that's the space of execution that I operate within. So it's policies, structures, procedures, et cetera. So in, in the realm of policies, as an example, you can sit there and you can think about 
every detailed scenario that could hypothetically potentially happen and maybe happened once 10 years ago that some random person remembers. So we better put that into the policy. And, and the reality is that so often we will sit in a room in this echo chamber and try to engineer something that's absolutely just perfect. And what we come out with on the, at the other end of the, of the project is just a completely useless, worthless policy that really doesn't do anything because it, it tries to do everything. You've got individuals that will follow that rule to a T. You've got individuals that will try to follow that rule to a T and will fail because they don't understand it. And you've got individuals that will just not follow it because they either weren't paying attention or don't care. My, my school of thought as it relates to, to managing execution is you can only do so much as it relates to the engineering of the actual project itself, because when you rely on human behavior to execute, it is illogical. And so much of that, and I, it's just been proven time and time again in my career, so much of that comes down to that individual leadership, the next level leader of somebody and how they are ensuring that there is empathy and compassion, that there is accountability, as well as some level of incentive for an individual to perform, to execute. And if, and if any of those things are, are not there, usually you'll find issues. The other thing I would say is that nine times out of 10, people's motivations are typically fairly pure. People don't, I don't believe that people wake up and go to work and say, I'm really, I really want to suck at work today. I want to try to make this just a really miserable experience for everybody. But so often what happens is people think that they're doing what they should be doing and they're just misaligned. And that for me is a leadership issue. And if people are struggling or there's challenges with people understanding objectives or accountabilities, then again, that goes back to leadership. So managing execution for me, it's about making sure that you've got the, the right framework to succeed in, but then the win or fail factor is really on the leadership. There's some practical implications of that too. And I like how you err on the side of what I call being aggressive. I've always been on the, the revenue side of an organization, so I'm going to lean that way anyways. It's figure out how best you can let people run while making sure that they don't run off a cliff. <laughs> and I think that strikes the right balance because it, especially in your organization, I'd be curious to see when you have oversight over an organization that spans 14 countries and 34 locations, what are the bottlenecks that you'll encounter if <laughs> you have an over-engineered process? The challenge that we run into as an organization is the fact that we need to be nimble and, and we also need to be innovative. And those two things are in direct conflict with what I would call your kind of your command and control bureaucracy that you'll find in many organizations that have focused extremely heavily on the engineering. And, and, and when I say engineering, like the engineering of the systems and structures so that there is like consistency for consistency's sake. And so I think my approach there has always been systemize where you can systemize. And I don't mean build a policy. I don't mean write like a 300 page handbook, actually systemize, use technology, use automation. Are there shared tools, resources, and capabilities that can be leveraged across an entire organization? As an example, from an HR standpoint, why don't we use a common merit planning tool? Okay, that takes everybody out of an Excel spreadsheet, probably saves everybody some time and energy, and it gives me some centralized ability to drive equitable pay programs and ensure that we've got the appropriate job leveling and global normalization of compensation information. There's my HR nerd coming out. But, but as an example, like that's a system, that's a systemized 
way to improve and drive consistency and kind of engineer a process. When it comes to local decision-making, where it is about innovation, it is about being nimble, it is about going out and, and, and having the right to win in the markets that we're in. Yeah, we've got to be aggressively supporting our people to be out there and to be able to understand what decisions can they make? Can they make them independently? Are, are, are there 13 layers of approval for every quote? Those sorts of things like where possible, we've got to try to streamline that and give some independent decision-making authority. So from my standpoint, you can't have, you can't have both. You can't have heavy bureaucracy and have nimble decision-making and innovation. And if anybody does, I want to come hang out with you for a week because I'll be curious to see how you do it. Those signposts that you mentioned about being nimble and, and being able to pivot, those are all important lessons for organizations that are small to mid-sized organizations that want to scale up or have poor resourcing, which just about every HR organization, regardless <laughs> <Right>. of size, <laughs> is going to have resourcing issues. But those lessons... I think are valuable. Whereas I think when you look at a lot of what happens is that people always look for a technical solve where you can probably throw a little bit of process, not a lot, a little bit of process and solve a lot of the issues that, that you might be facing. Really good conversation um, that we've had so far. When we think about the stuff that we've covered so far, how you build out and structure with a bias for speed and a bias for action, what are the big takeaways that you want to make sure that the listeners walk away with when they're looking at how do I build my organization to position ourselves to be a high-performing team? I'll give a little bit of context there for that question. So in my experience, so I spent my first, I don't know, 12 years of my post-college career learning what good looks like, really learning best practices. So I was working in a couple different Fortune 500 companies, got to see what is considered good in the in that realm and i got to see some things that really didn't work and they were supposed to be quote best practices but i saw them used incorrectly or or in some cases just thought that they were stupid and when i had the opportunity to build an organization within my current company which was this was about six years ago i essentially had a blank piece of paper what i did before jumping in and trying to change the world and the organization is I started really small. I took those best practices that I had observed and I figured out which ones mattered the most. And then I fixed that problem. And I didn't mention, I, it was just me and one other person who happened to have been doing payroll for the last 20 years. And she was a solo HR person. She's amazing. She's still with us and doing amazing now. But so it was just me. So before I could do anything, before I could get resources, before I could get any street cred or capability enhancements, I had to prove that I knew what I was doing and validate that, that the value existed to invest in what I needed to get done. So not only was I trying to build a department, I was trying to convince people that human resources mattered as a department and needed to matter. From there, I started to check off the small wins and it was something as simple as, hey, we got paperless pay stubs now. Hey, we got this online vacation accrual done now. Hey, helped manage through this employee relations things, filled this position. Here's a recruiting structure and strategy. Here's an applicant tracking system to help take away manager headaches. These sorts of things, as these started to check off, started to build some kind of some internal coalitions, some street cred, if you will. And then I was able to start validating for resources. And my approach has always been this. So I set my strategic vision five years ago. 
And I have five key elements within my organization after about a six month assessment that I wanted to make sure I checked off. It was, it's things like employee experience, enterprise risk management, talent acquisition, career development, and I can keep going. But then within that framework, I just made sure that I incrementally improved in one of the, in, in all of those things every single day. And every project that we were working on hit one of those top five priorities every single day. And now we're at a point where I've got a team working underneath me, working on accelerating this strategy to the point that now we're actually starting to see organization-wide systemic change. But it's, it all started with the, these kind of these daily incremental wins and focuses. And even if it was one person who had an improved employee experience or one improvement in the talent acquisition process, that's really how I would encourage anybody to think about it, whether it's human resources or any other aspect of team building is where are the small wins? Where can you take the incremental improvements? And I call it rampant incrementalism. So just, you just have to be fanatically better a little bit every single day. I really like that last point. Your focus shouldn't be going from where you are today to the moon tomorrow. It should be just (laughs) 1% better than you were today, tomorrow. And if you do that over a period of time, you're going to get to where you need to get to. So I, I really like that example that you use. Kyle, thanks for hanging out with us. Where can people find you? Absolutely. So you can hit me up on LinkedIn. It's Kyle, K-Y-L-E Road, R-O-E-D. I've got a, a website, www.kyleroad.com, or you can check out the podcast on Podcast Players. It's Rebel Human Resources. We talk about all sorts of fun stuff and have way more inter- interesting guests. It's a good show. You should check it out. Really appreciate you hanging out with us. When I think about the conversation that we had and I'm tying it together, here are the big things that stand out to me. When we're looking at systematizing what you did and bringing it to any organization and making it a successful, first you start with defining what good looks like. Then you identify what are the things within your organization that you should prioritize to solve and the impact that it can have, and then start small on those things once you've prioritized it. Solve those items and then have a bias for action. If you take those elements and apply it to whatever you're trying to tackle, I think you have a formula for success and it's been proven out based on Kyle's experience at uh, CPM. So I think it's a great primer for those listeners that are out there. Thanks for hanging out with us and listening to the episode. For those of you who have enjoyed the conversation, leave us a review. Tune in next time where we'll have another leader on the show sharing their game-changing insights that help them build a high-performance team. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HR Impact Show. We hope you liked the conversation. Don't forget to continue supporting us by joining the HR Impact community. You can find the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. Tune in next time where we'll have another guest who's going to share with us the game-changing insights that help them build high-performing teams.